Alexa, what time is it? The time is 6.27 p.m. Okay. Well, we're here. We are, we are but live. And welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow till we die. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sansbury. So there we are. We've managed to negotiate some slight technical issues after getting Larry over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, actually delivered the 1827 bang on time. And uh, yeah, it's a, another beautiful day in lockdown, Cosham. Day 69 for myself, 10 weeks tomorrow. Day 69. Yeah. It's, does, uh, does that work? It's all trotting along. And what 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 a... What a weekend we've had in politics, eh, Simon? Um, it's certainly been interesting, and not all of the stories have been really kind of about useful things for, um, for you know, government health message or for, or for party, have they really? No, no. I, I was going to adopt a disguise for this evening's episode, but um, were you felt felt I should, I should brazenly step forth into uh, into the, uh, into the limelight. If we have such a thing, and um, and we will, we will bravely battle on as uh, as we we are wont to do. So, but we've got a couple of guests on today, which is lovely. So uh, our original focus before the mainstream media tried to ruin it all for us with their nonsense and everything that then surrounds that was to look at education. So, who have we got on, Simon? So well, we've um, we've welcomed onto the show. We have none the le- no um, no one less than um, cabinet member for education and young people, councillor Susie Horton, um, and from the blue team we have uh, councillor uh, Terry Norton, Horton and Norton. That's a that's a that's a double act if ever there was one. Um, we should we should see if they want to do a dance or something. Um, Flanagan so- and Allen of of local politics. This is going to be beautiful. We'll we'll run with the Horton and Norton thing. Yes. So um, it's um, yes. We'll be we'll be having them on shortly to um, to um, give us some updates as to what their views are on the world of education and how those preparations are going um, to get schools open for um for june the first for um reception year um kids um we've got a couple of people um watching the live stream already um and the way my screen's playing up oh i haven't lost them all so we've got dave we've got phil we've got lynn um and we've got jill from far away andover and we're also joined by councillor lee hunt as well so not only have we got councillor dave ashmore we've got councillor lee hunt um the numbers are there uh, yeah, unfortunately, we were not able to get somebody from the red team, despite our best efforts. And I know there are some who think they, they may have been feeble in our nature, but we do like to have a diverse set of voices on the podcast. And, um, you know, we, 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 we tried. Um, so Amanda Martin, Martin, yep. um, unfortunately, was double booked. So, uh, you know, we had originally tried to, to get her on to represent the red team. Mm-hmm. We then had a bit of a communications challenge with tom coles who um didn't manage to pick up our message but sent uh, a nice message over just before we were due to go live and hopefully tom um from local councillor tom coles from local labor will be joining us on a future podcast so whilst we don't have 
somebody from the red team today hopefully we've got a we've got somebody in the bank for one of the future episodes indeed indeed um and it was great last week having having our first member of the local greens on so um tim shim and chase had um had lots to say about local green issues and about the environmental challenges so it was really good um having him participating so as we said, I, the door's there. I guess our final challenge will be to uh, to see whether we can get somebody from the Portsmouth People's Progressive Party or Alliance, or um, you know, so Jeanette and Claire. Obviously, they're the they're the last sort of faction in oh, factions, probably the wrong word, but the last group involved in local politics who have yet to come and join us. But the door, as always, remains open. Indeed, an interesting point I thought before we before we open the door to our guests is that a year ago yesterday was the European elections that was was, our, was that the... nobody wanted. <laughs> well, not nobody. So um, what a year it has been since. Um, and um, considering that the, the, the Liberal Democrats released their, um, their analysis of their general election review, which I haven't got round to reading all of yet, but it's cool, very, that's, comp- very. That's a horror story, isn't it? Very, cool, very. You don't want to read that just before you go to bed, son. You'll be sitting bolt upright <laughs> and screaming about three o'clock in the morning. Um, dark, from, from dark what, materials. From that what I've seen, it's it's very comprehensive and very honest, and doesn't doesn't spare blushes. So that's really good. That's what you want from a review, um, um, and indeed inquiries. <clears throat> so um, I think that's an interesting thing because considering how, um, what place we were in as a party when we um, saw the results of those elections and how those results were interpreted by um, by some and how we went with that um, and how that kind of turned into a bit of a car crash in, in December. So May to December, that was a TV series, wasn't it? I think so. Uh, I can't remember what it was about. It was one of those sort it, of... It was about, um, wasn't it about um, um, a couple... Um, an elderly couple, but one of them was more, was was uh, quite a bit older than the other than the other. Um, so I dri- I dribble on. We've got a whole thirteen people watching the live stream. I, I, we're breaking records, guys. This is marvelous, marvelous. Welcome. Right, we're dribbling on now. Focus, man. Yes. So open the lobby. So <laughs> I feel like I'm. Am I doing like a Richard O'Brien thing where I kind of let them in and? You know, we then kind of dance across a post post apocalyptic industrial landscape. You've gone all crystal maze on me. Well, that's what I was thinking. Let them in, you know. Let, yeah. Let them in. So if you I can I, be, a, you can be. I'll, I'll be. Um. I'll be Ed Tudor Pole. I don't get that. He was also. He took over the crystal maze from Richard O'Brien. And was the lead singer of Temple Tudor, Swords of a Thousand Men. There you go. We've, okay. gone, on a, we've I, I, gone on a ramble. I'll take your, I'll Susie, take your word Terry, for it. Susie, bring this podcast back into some semblance of order. I, I think th- Simon I and I Rich- might have lost our collective minds already. I think it was Richard Aowardi, but nonetheless. So well, welcome, Susie and Terry. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, so thank you, for, thank you for joining us and um, submitting yourselves to a live stream. This is our... This is our first time having two guests simultaneously, so um, God knows how that's going to go. Um, but no fighting, all right? <laughs> oh, we're good at not fighting. We're good. We get on very well, don't we, Susie? We do. We do. Brilliant. We'll ask, we've, you, we'll ask you to do a duet we've, at the end. We've, we've badged you as the new celebrity double act, like a, a crime-fighting duo, the Horton and Norton. So uh, <laughs> that, 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 
that gives you an idea of the, the, the way our um the way our thought processes are working seeming so so up until 48 hours and i'm sure we'll come on to that later um probably the the, the really hot topic since uh, the, the Prime Minister's Sunday evening announcement of the easing of lockdown is, is there's been so much talk in the media about the, the restarting of, of the reopening of, well, the reopening of schools. Schools have been open throughout the pandemic, looking after the children of key workers and vulnerable children. But the, 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 the big news was the, the reopening of year R1 and year six, which obviously has played out um, across the media in this last week. So Susie, if we can just ask you first, kind of how, how are the schools in Portsmouth looking in terms of being open for business in one week's time? Yeah, well the, well, the first thing is to highlight what you what you said um, already that actually this is not the reopening of schools and that schools have been open the entire time and every school in Portsmouth has been open. Um, in terms of the announcement last, I think it was just last week, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> I, I've lost track of time as well, Susie. <laughs> I, I wanted to say it was last week, but then I was yeah. certain it was two weeks ago because time oh, yeah. has, has walked. So, I, we're not sure. So schools um, obviously have reacted um, in, in different ways. I think there was a little bit of surprise that of the year group that was chosen to be prioritised, like reception, because so much of the media has been about an emphasis on social distancing and anyone who's worked in a school will know that uh, a year R are probably the least capable of social distancing than, than any year group. Then, of course, the next day nursery was chucked in there where it hadn't actually been... Um, announced on the uh, on the first i am really sorry <laughs> oh my goodness is that boris is that the education minister to say no hang on it's changed i meant to take that out before i started but i forgot anyway um so um there was, there was that that was thrown in the reset uh, the nursery as well um so basically the way that portsmouth schools um have acted throughout this is to put safety first and bearing in mind that they've been open the entire time, they have been employing all the guidance around social distancing, hand washing, et cetera. So really what they did was to, to make rapid um, plans for actually initially to, to take carry on with that social distancing, take those year groups and create some kind of a rotor system where that they could um, go along with the notion that actually it's a good thing for kids to be back in school and I think we all agree on that that um, for, for more you know some children more than others and um, get back to this notion of normality but actually um, maintain social distancing and then the the spanner in the works came oh by the way you can't do rotors so the way um, that schools in Portsmouth have done is just to um, to to keep to government guidelines as much as possible whilst maintaining all of the rules around social distancing. Now, um, that eventually leads you to, a, to an exercise of logic. If you're in a big secondary school and you've got year 10 coming back, then it's easier to spread that, maintain social distancing and see those year 10s. If you're in an infant school with a nursery attached and you are bringing back nursery children and year R as well, and you have key workers, and you have um, vulnerable children, in some cases it gets to a, um, an impossible task to, make, to actually have those two things going, going on. And what, in my position and what the council have decided is that we will support schools 
in prioritising um, those year groups, taking into account the fact that the government has said it can't be rotated, and that if it means that because of space that they can only have year R out of those suggested groups, then then we would support them in that. So, so in terms of the rotor piece, Susie, just to, to, to make sure that I, I understand that as much as anybody else. So that 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 means the options of, you know, some children come in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and other children come in Tuesday, Thursday. That that's yeah. the thing that's been ruled out. Yeah, and I I actually think there's a logic to that. I think, and this is this is the interesting thing is around the science. So we're talking about safety rather than high quality education. And I think it's not surprising that um, a, a bunch of teachers want to see all their children because that's part of their in their DNA to think they can offer something to children during these times. And therefore um, that, you know, seeing um, cohorts of children for two days a week, each week before the summer on an educational level seems like a really sensible thing to do. So that by the time you get to the summer, every single child has been in contact with their school and their and their children. Of course, the science pushback on that is actually you want to minimise the amount of people in a community who are coming in and out the school. And I think um, that in the end, once the rotors were ruled out, I think schools could see that on a pragmatic level and a scientific level that actually it, it would end up being prioritisation of a certain year group. Now, there's debate whether year R is more important than or why year R, to be honest. Um, but a year 10, it seems to be a bit more logical. Um, but once that had been absorbed, um, schools did amend their initial kind of enthusiastic flurry of activity around uh, rotors into now what we're calling a bubble bubble school. Yep. Great. Shall we, um, shall we invite Terry to have, have some, um, put some comments in on that? Yeah, no, I think, thank you. I think it is interesting, isn't it? I think the reason that year R are being decided is first to go back because I think they are at the lowest risk. Um, and, you know, to my understanding, I don't think any child under the age of 10 has died of, of COVID-19. So, I mean, that, that, that's where I think where the logic's coming from there. Um, but I think what's interesting on this is that we've reached a point where we're not taking the wider statistical ev uh, evidence seriously. Um, and in most cases, I think 99% of the cases, there are talks about what other countries are doing. Um, and yet when it comes to education, we're, we're, we're avoiding that. And we, we, you know, we talk often hearing about the risks, um, et cetera. Um, and, and also the, the WHO have said that they think that there are rare, rare cases of, you know, of children um, contracting this, uh, contracting, uh, contracting it out of classroom, etc. But we've got to be, we've got to think about the setting. And, you know, and I think it's perfectly acceptable for, for teachers, parents, etc., to, um, you know, to, to worry about this. It is a pandemic uh, and it does spread in a crowded setting. Um, but we seem to look at what other countries are doing, especially Europe, uh, on most issues, but we don't seem to be doing it on education. Okay, yeah, so... Um... So that that's an interesting yeah because I'm I must admit there's um it kind of, it does on the face of it kind of seem quite strange doesn't it to have the age range of children that frankly are used to kind of licking things and you know you you know it would be difficult to kind of convince them to to stay away from each other but what you're saying is that the reason why um 
those are being chosen first isn't because of their ability to obey um, distancing. It's actually because of the evidence around trans transmission and um, susceptibility to infection. Yeah. Just, um, I think the word pods came up, and I've seen that come up a, a few times before. Um, you know, it, it, do you? When I was listening, you know, when I first heard the announcement, I, I you know, I, I, we've had small children in the past, and as you know, Simon has alluded to, just trying to get them to stop eating crayons and the like, <laughs> licking each other is a challenge in itself. How educators manage to do any more than that has always been beyond me. Do you, do you think that this sort of pod concept that I've seen sort of said, you know, no more than 15 children is basically an admission that you're not going to get year R and year one children to socially distance? Um, I I think I think there's an I think it's about a consistency. If you're telling people that they can't go and see a relative or they can't go and do or all sorts of other things, which is I think one of your questions uh, further down uh, in your list is um, is that actually you have to maintain that in school. Or they can't. The thing around year R is um, that that I think needs to be emphasised is whilst I absolutely accept this notion that. We, we don't know whether they're carrying it and, and, and not being symptomatic or we don't know whether, but it is apparent, thank goodness, that it's not a, um, a disease that's impacting, you know, and killing children and those same numbers, which is, which is obviously a very positive thing. But actually, this is also about the role that children have in their community. So those adults they're with, and hence the pods thing about minimising the amount of contact mm. that they have with each other, is that those those people are going back home. So then I had heard an argument that the other reason it was year R was actually that they're less, less likely to go out of their family homes when they do go home, whereas older children might then go out further into the community. So, and that again is a logical argument. Mm. But this is also about teachers and teachers' families. Um, and I think what came out in the um, in the more recent um, evidence that was presented um, is the fact that logically, again, the longer that we maintain social distancing and the extent to which we do, the, the less likely that these young people are going to be spreaders. And I think that's the kind of key message that's coming out at the moment. And I think also it is important to say that I think, you know, that lots of schools are handling this very, very well at the moment. They've got some really clear, detailed plans along with the government advice. And, and you know, it's quite clear, isn't it? The government are asking us to reduce class sizes. They're asking us to stagger uh, breaks uh, and lunch times and pick ups and, and drop offs. Um, you know, they're not sharing equipment in schools. They committed to access to tests for all staff and, and children if they feel they need it. Uh, and trying to utilise outdoor space. So it all seems like quite positive steps into you know, moving forward and having a, a positive um, you know, approach to, to, to getting back to school. Um, you know, and I've, I've not been privy to um, many of the conversations uh, at the council. I know that Susie and, and the officers wanted to keep it quite non-political in terms of planning how we go back. Um, but you know, my point always is that I hope schools are talking to each other and where schools are potentially not opening in, in, in a week's time that they've picked up the phone and, and heads have had a chat with other schools to see that how they're doing things because you know I think that sharing of information is really really important because often in a city like Portsmouth you know the most densely populated city outside of London you're only ever half a mile away from another school who mm. have, a, have a good formula and who are getting it right. 
So to that end, Susie, do we do we know at the moment? You know, again, uh, some people uh, the the I believe the alternative sage that was set up um, suggested that it, if it was June the fifteenth, that that mm. would you know, again, I always, I always take these sort of numbers with a pinch of salt because it's that, you know, the talk of halving the risk, you know, whether that's from one in three million to one in six million, you know, it, it, we, we don't know. And I'm just making those numbers up. But yeah. but it, it, there's an element of, you know, in terms of the, the you know, the Portsmouth response, do, do you have a feel for, you know, what sort of percentage of schools are going to be open on, on June the 1st? And are others taking the decision that, that actually no, we're going to wait a bit? And and I guess the question is, does PCC support them in that decision? Yeah, and um, yes, we are in correspondence. There's been weekly calls um, with schools throughout the whole of the coronavirus. And um, I think the fact that Portsmouth is a very densely populated um, city in terms of schools as actually the, one of the positives to come out of it has been the close working together of schools, uh, both academies and um, LA maintained schools. I can't give you um, a definitive number of who will be open on the first and who won't be. Um, but what I can say is that one of, one of my aims for sure was to try and get as much of a consensus as possible for exactly the sort of the reasons that Terry was alluding to is if there's massive inconsistencies with schools which are at less than half a mile from each other, A, that's not very useful for that community, possibly even one family. Um, and, um, and B, um, you know, it's an opportunity to share ideas and everything. So before the um, official and unofficial SAGE uh, reports came out on um, Friday, we'd, um, we'd been working with schools and, as I said, they'd, most of them are going along this notion of bubbles in one, or pods in one way or another. Um, my position was always that, and I, I think this is just sensible, that actually to support schools, in the decisions that they were making, as long as they were demonstrating that they had um, made them based on safety grounds. Now, what's really interesting is, for the first time since probably about 1988, Education Reform Act, suddenly the government have accorded all this power back to local authorities. So we feel like we've got a local education authority for the first time in decades. So it's a quite an interesting position. So ultimately, the council has been accorded the kind of organization of this, whilst notwithstanding, I should say, the fact that multi-academy trusts are making their own decisions. So we are all sitting around the table. The local authority has direct sign-off, as it were, of the of the health and safety, um, um, you know, um, what's the word I want? Health and safety, well, they're like- assessment. Your risk assessment, that's it, which um, there's a government version, but also Portsmouth City Council created their own, that we ultimately sign those off, which is where we get to see the rationale. Um, so I guess a worst case scenario is a school decides they don't want to go back. What are we going to do about that? But I, I'm pretty confident that schools are aiming to do that. So even before the SAGE, um, uh, even before the SAGE reports came out, there were some schools that were saying, we will not be opening up to year R on the 1st of June, but we will do by the 8th. And I was already supportive of that because those re that reasoning was around safety. Okay. So when it comes, just a final point. So now as the landscape has shifted in the last couple of days, I'm maintaining that same rationale, which is 
if schools need to the 15th to feel that their schools are safe enough, then we will support them in that. Okay. But I have heard that some aren't going to wait till the 15th and some are going to open earlier, but we will base that on those risk assessments. Okay. I'm, I'm going to give Terry a chance to come back on that yeah. before we then, because we kind of, we've, bless us, we've got a little bit kind of lost in our order of questions, so forgive us. Um, we've got a bit too excited having two guests at the same time. Um, and I've been trying to follow the comments on the Facebook thread. So sorry, Terry, if I let you respond to those points. Yeah, no problem at all. I mean, my only point really is that I think the sooner we, we, we get children back into that routine, uh, the better, really. Um, I think during this lockdown, the gap between, you know, shall we say rich and poor families is increasing. And the longer it goes on, I think uh, there'll be more of an increase in in educational inequality and you know I, I know that the um the institute for fiscal studies um have said something like four thousand families across uh, the country are going to be you know their children are going to be a week and a half behind um their better off um peers by the end of this month and you know we can't guarantee that every family has access to an internet and home learning and, and a laptop and all those sort of things so the sooner we can get children back into school into a safe environment where they're well looked after, you know, with, with good role models, well fed, and all of those sort of things. I think the better, which is, I think, makes it more frustrating when, you know, we see the unions kind of blanket refusal um, that we've seen over the last uh, few weeks or so. Thank you. That that actually leads us back to what we'd originally build as our, as our first question. So that's really that's really quite effortlessly done, mate. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> so the first so the first question that we had was that um, um, and and we we were expecting to try and try and see where the difference in responses were was actually around that issue. Is that you know with unions fighting um, for the safety of their members and the children that they teach, what what have been your views about how the unions in general have of and overall have actually handled the, the situation. Shall I stick with Terry for now um, and then come back to Susie? Well, I think it's interesting, actually. It's interesting that Amanda declined the um, opportunity to be on tonight, especially considering in the national papers today, you know, she's quoting that um, a, a hardline stance is about a negotiating position, um, a negotiating position with the, with the government, et cetera, um, which would suggest that it's less about teachers and children. Um, you know, I think that is... Uh, not very helpful at all um you know perhaps we could have uh perhaps you could have empty chaired her tonight like uh so many of the uh to, so many groups do like yeah, to be fair terry <laughs> no, to be fair terry and, and again I, I will be fair she she did um she she was very clear that she was already double booked so she's appearing okay. yeah. on maybe somebody else's podcast or radio show but i i, yeah. I fundamentally Out. agree she should have prioritized ours but uh, yeah outrageous i'm pleased but, yeah. that um the conversations are continuing between uh unions and the government i think that's really really helpful what's not helpful is is the blanket bombing and Can, is everyone? Is it just me that's lost that, or did everyone else catch the last bit from Terry? I, 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 he was still going. Okay, I just I just missed the last bit. Don't worry about me. Yeah. Um, okay, not at all. No, thank you. Um, sorry, were you, so, did you come to the end yeah, of your? So, yeah. Sorry, sorry, I'm far away. Uh, no, I, my my connection kind of froze up a little bit then, so I wasn't sure whether you'd actually come to a natural pause in your or no. or a stop in your in your remarks. So do you want me? To, do you need to carry on, or shall I? Well, no, I'm happy to carry on. Look, I mean, like. Throughout this whole situation, I said it's really important. I think that we are radiators, not drains, and you know, and we've got to be positive here. Um, I think the unions do have a habit 
of, of, of finding a problem in all solutions. And, and some of the rhetoric we're seeing, we're telling staff to refuse to engage in planning, you know, calling decisions reckless. It does nothing but, you know, I think uh, add to that, that, that feeling of, of fear that is already out there among um, you know, staff, parents uh, and students. I think it's also important to mention that, you know, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, has sent his children to school throughout this whole process. Now, I've been I've taught um, almost every day um, since this. And, you know, he will he supports and I was saying he supports a, a reopening there. Um, so that hard line, I don't think is very well received. And it does put teachers in a negative light. Um, you know, teachers have unfairly received criticism in, in the press um, recently. And it's because I think that the, the hard line from the unions has been share as frustrated people it's annoyed people and they felt that you know teachers should go back to work etc and it's not fair because there are some really hard working teachers out there who do want to get back to work they do want to look after the uh, the children that are within their care that they serve and you know are, are desperate to get back really um it is worth saying i think that not all unions are are taking that stance that refusal um approach i think ASCO um are are, are very supportive and they appreciate the point I think that I made earlier um, the longer this goes the larger you get gaps in inequality so they want to get children I think back to school um, but you know it's interesting isn't it definitely mm. thank you Terry Susie I, I'm just going to start off with a fear one because I, I kind of think I that's the bit I agree with Terry a little bit on is this whole I what's frustrating me is the fact that in this dispute becomes this association of school as a scary place and both for staff and and for for pupils and um, I think that's going to end up being a real challenge for schools and for the education sector is actually um, building building this back up personally I would have rather seen a little bit more guidance and structure from the government and a delayed start because take because the science would have dictated that that was making it more safe in terms of the R number and I think it would have been an easier narrative to sell to teachers and pupils and their fam and families which who are the most scared in a way that it mm. wasn't it wasn't a dangerous place to be so, so also coming back to an agreement with Terry is actually for children it's not the the, the actual risk of having COVID-19 is was low always and is still low it's about that um it's about you know squashing the curve and dealing with the pandemic so that's that's the first thing about fear the re i've actually worked really positively with the unions on this they've come to a lot of meetings and actually on the whole the negotiations in portsmouth have been um very respectful and kind of collegiate although often that's with um with heads who are obviously in a position where they are the leaders and they have to write a plan. I mean, they can't, they can't abdicate that from that responsibility of doing it. Um, the reason why I think so far I'm on the same page as them is I go back right to the beginning of this pandemic. Now I live with a, um, my nan who is at the moment, I live with my nan who is nearly 102 and she has three sets of carers who come in every day. And right at the beginning of this pandemic, the, Public Health England stated that there was no need for PPE for carers. And I 
vociferously um, you know, sort of uh, communicated my view on that because I felt that was a, a communication that was made because of the lack of PPE and not based on good scientific evidence. And so that's why I, I think there's some illogical stuff going on here around PPE and around teachers and about protection of them and their families and children and their families as well. So when I read the SAGE, interestingly I read Skim Red, the, the official SAGE, it was very much blinding with science. But actually I think there's a lot, there is some crossover there that the, the, the more delay there is, the more chance there is of reducing the reinfection rate. And I personally at this point think that until we can get proper health and safety sign off, and guarantees that that is safe for everyone in the community that I, I, I agree with them at the moment. Mm. I think it's an interesting point Susie and it's interesting you touch on fear and, and relative risk because you know there's been a lot of there's been a lot of information in the press this week about the number of teachers who kind of don't feel safe mm. and you know a lot of a lot of interviews on, you know, I, I saw a series on breakfast television where, you know, tearful parents were basically taking the, well, I'm not sending my child back, it's not safe. I think this is where, during this whole pandemic, that, that those kind of levels of relative risk are, are, are so sort of subtle and nuanced that it is, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's very hard to play that out in media because, you know, and let's be honest, there there isn't really a story in, you know, your relative risk is very low, you'll almost certainly be okay. Mm. Um, and, and I think you, you touch on something important, though, which is, you know, and again, we, we'll have to see, you know, when schools reopen, just how many um, parents actually choose to send their children back to school. Yeah. And I, I think I think this is when we come back to the education bit of it. Um, and I am I'm, I'm obviously um, I, I truly believe that there is an inequality in terms of what I call the, the, the lockdown experience. Um, I think the other thing worth saying is this notion of schools reopening and getting back to normal. We have to do a little bit of expectation management here for both children, teachers and parents. This isn't going to be back to normal as it was for a very, very long time. So the other thing that teachers are doing is doing is, is in some cases, you know, starting from a very low base, it's actually creating online learning and teaching. And I think that's gone from sending a few, you know, packs and getting a couple of bits of activities on Terry will be able to tell me more than this than I can, but on the, on the web to now seriously having teachers back. So for example, I know one school where all teachers are expected to be back into work on the first, but no increase in children other than the key workers. And the, um, and the vulnerable children with an emphasis on changing the way that school is to start addressing that learning gap that's been highlighted. And I think even in September, people, I think some people in their mind is, well, we'll potter on till the summer with a few pods and come September, it's gonna be normal. I don't think it is. So- mm, You've, you've you know, stolen one of my future questions, but- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. Terry, your thoughts there? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, this started off with, um, you know, I think, heads asking using snowpacks and things that they had in place for emergencies. Mm. And since then, it's developed into a, a real um, 
intense program really with, with lots of work being set and and um you know uh, teachers working really really hard to use technology and and make welfare checks and phone home and and carry on as best they can to to do all of those things that they you know got into the profession for um i guess uh, the problem is you can't reach everybody and although we've got key worker schools working and it, it's great to see kids in that you know are are being well looked after and fed etc um you can't guarantee um what's happening beyond that at home and behind closed doors so the sooner we can get back to that kind of uniformity i think i think the better um mm -hmm. what's difficult hearing all this and and, and knowing that teachers are, are really do care and, and work incredibly hard um is is that sense that the perception that's been paced, uh, painted of them in the press is like i said one from a union perspective and now, you've got to ask how would how would teachers respond to students refusing to go into their class how would they respond to, to students refusing to learn and yet the rhetoric that we're hearing from the reunions is don't engage refuse um certainly from you know one of the main ones and i think that's really really disappointing um you know on top of that unions don't represent all teachers actually it's it's a very small i think vocal uh group that that, that they um they, they they tend to represent and, and mainly uh, the large, the silent majority in teaching don't really engage that much with, with the unions and just want to kind of get on and do their job. So I, I hate the fact that teachers are being painted in a very negative light by a, a negative press um, from what I feel is a, a union position, not really representative of, 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 of teachers, you know, many of whom are out clapping for the key workers and, and some of the most low, lowest paid in, in, in communities. Um, no, they want to go back. They want to go back to work. A lot of them, I think. Okay, thank you. Did you want to do the next question, Ian? I can't remember what it is, and I haven't got it on the screen in front of me. Okay, so I, I think I, you should do it. Okay. Over the fact that you're organised. Okay. Well. Okay. Well. Well. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. And don't don't spread that rumour. Um, well, we've have we kind of we've kind of really covered the Portsmouth City Council have said that they'll stand by schools yep. that won't open or can't open. Sorry, I should um, let me choose better language. Um, our third question on our on our merry list was that um, was that about the sage advice saying that um, that the risk from um, um, sorry to use the not reopened for um, reintroducing um, the the years that uh, the government have talked about um, actually halves if they if it's left until June fifteenth shouldn't shouldn't we just wait, Susie? Um. Well, it's like all all of this scientific advice. It has to be kind of you know, it you have to if unless you're a scientist, then you're you're dealing with the information you've got. For me, it that seems logical then. And I've read I've seen the three graphs, which also says if you leave it to the beginning of September, which a lot of parents are saying anyway that they're not sending their children back before the summer holidays because there's that kind of psychological break that suddenly another six weeks is going to make all the difference because normally a six-week holiday is a massive length of time for a parent yep. can't wait to get there but actually when you think you know we've been in lockdown that amount of time actually it could happen again how much how different would it be but the graphs that I saw if I trust the science that I read make that incredibly logical that the 15th would be a far a far better way to contribute to the reduction of the R rate. As I, I, I want to come back to the point that I make, I don't 
think for children, school is a scary and dangerous no. place as far as this illness is concerned. But if we're saying that children are part of a wider community and we have this collective responsibility to behave for the good of everyone and to protect the NHS and et cetera, et cetera, then it makes inherent and logical sense that if all those children are at home for the for, uh, until the 15th, that it would reduce the R rate or contribute to the reduction of the R rate. Um, that is a separate separate issue to whether I think as a someone who cares about teaching, whether it would be beneficial for numbers of those children to start reintroducing school into their daily life. Okay, Terry? Yeah, well, I think what this is about, it's about testing the R rate, isn't it? In, and doing that, uh, it's small steps first, isn't it? Doing it in the safest possible uh, uh, manner with, you know, Younger children first, and if it spikes, then the government have the opportunity to revise their decision on on the fifteenth. Um, you know, I still stand by my point that every week that goes by is, is a week of uncertainty for some um, teachers and and children and families, etc. So this is all about testing, isn't it? It's all about you know seeing what happens with the R rate. If it spikes, then they can make the decision. Um, hence the decision to have three year groups in and and the five steps that you know that we heard about earlier. Mm. So, one of the one of my great musings as 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 somebody who's been locked down for coming up for ten weeks, one of the things that seems suspiciously absent from all of the government hinting about future measures is so far they haven't said anything about the time when social distancing will not be in play, and I think Susie, you you touched on it, and maybe because there's a short term challenge. Have you guys given any thought to September? And you know, we, you know, the, the conversation about class sizes isn't going to go away. Um, we don't have schools that have 50, 60 percent spare volume and capacity. Have you given any thoughts as to what September might look like if we're still having to play the social distancing card? Absolutely, and that is that is high on the agenda at the moment, and every indication is that hence why I made my previous point it's not going to be school as normal um, in September therefore we do need to address this um, well digital inequality and also the quality and this is where schools are moving to now um, is is actually looking at right what what does digital look like and how much of it has been almost like activity and how much now is um needs to go to actually delivering a curriculum so that these children don't end up missing what potentially could be up to a year of their learning um mm. i do i do want to just jump in there with something this is for me as an educational philosopher and terry will know this <laughs> i um i i've not been a mad fan of bleak tables i'm not that i am not um the type of person who thinks that exams are the be all and end all. I think there's a massive opportunity here to look at what I consider to be the, the, the real uh, purpose of education, which is looking at personal development, is looking at a wider curriculum. I mean, people are, are very much talking about mental health at the moment and for good reason, because with this level of fear, that I mean, I, we don't quite know what we're going to be receiving when these children and young people come mm. back to school, and they will have had an incredibly diverse um, lockdown experience. 
Um, so, but actually more than, and obviously mental health is incredibly important and that, that will need to be dealt with. But more than that, I think there is an opportunity to look at a broader curriculum and also personal development, maybe um, as well as the other more at traditionally academic subjects. Okay, Terry? I mean, I totally agree. I think this is less about uh, academics. It's more about development, isn't it? Hence the fact that I think the younger years are looking to, to bring them in uh, in first. That word, those, those key de developmental years um, is what we've heard a lot of, isn't it? I know that my daughter is desperate to, to, to for someone to play with and some friends. Um, there's only so much that you know me and my partner can do in terms of, of playing. She wants to be around friends. It's, it's not just about the academics, is it? It's about that development, that social development. Mm -hmm. Um, and safety. Um, so I think that's where the, the logic is coming from and, and, and the thoughts of starting with those younger children who don't necessarily need to, you know, be pushed in terms of phonics and, and academics, but more socially. I think that's the important part. Mm. Hmm. Thank you. It, it's an interesting kind of wider range of school isn't just about learning, is it? It, it, it it, it serves so many other uh, well it's a right purposes. of passage yeah. as well and i feel sorry for those you know those kids who've been it's been stolen from them their kind of transition as well i mean you know it's never happened it's since since compulsory schooling came in this has never ever happened where that's been you know that there's been this just taken away with no planning at all hmm. and so it's an interesting uh interesting thought thoughtful kind of stuff to yep. be dealing with Although I think it's interesting as well. Sorry, uh, no, go on, Terry. There, there will be some parents of uh, year 11 children who, yeah. whilst shedding a fake tear for the the absence of quote-unquote prom, might, um, <laughs> exactly. might be, uh, you know, I, I, luckily only one of my sons wanted to go to prom, but um, I, I still remember the, the cost of that. And for, for friends who have, uh, who have uh, young ladies who go to prom, it's... Um, I'm not sure when that ever started to become a thing. I think the schools are are doing all they can to make sure that you know their year 11s that have just left uh, will have something, be it a barbecue, be it a, a mock prom or something, or maybe prom at a later date. And because it is a rite of passage, isn't it? Um, but also on, on the on the development idea and, and and the fact that children don't just go to school to learn ABCs. You know, there are so many statistics out there about young children and and you know oracy and, and explorative talk and how if they miss a large period of their learning then it affects them you know in in, in the long term and that's not learning in terms of abcs i think it's just about mm. conversations and we can't guarantee that children are being having conversations at home Absolutely. and are developing and i think at a time when you know i think 66 percent of the employers or 70 percent of employers are saying they take the, the person over the qualification it is important that we're looking at that character building and we're, you know, we're developing um, vocal skills and all of those sort of things. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's important to say. It's not about economics, not about kind of getting kids back to school. So we, not only about getting kids back to school so we can boost the economy. I think it's also about development. Okay. So last question. It, it might not be clear what we're hinting at with this one. Um, you, you might be able to join the dots a little bit. Um, so... Government advice is still to remain at home except for four clear reasons. Um, is this something that everybody should be following? Susie? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Who do you want to go first? <laughs> should we let Should we let Ian make his Not comment? Me. He's got his head in his hands at the first. moment. Okay. Sorry. I I got where you were going. <laughs> you... So Boris backed him. Yeah, I, have, I was out yes. before, but Boris backed him presumably in his um, in his briefing today. Yes, he he um, he really backed him, which is a, a great act of loyalty um, and an admiration admiration for. Um, the parenting style of a man that um, has questionable um, links with his own children, but um, yes, that's what we. Yeah, to be honest, that's what we. That's what we're talking about. We're we're saying, you know, isn't the advice still to stay at home except for the four prescribed reasons? And is that something that we should all, regardless of what our job is, be doing? I've said this from day one. There does need to be an element of common sense in in what we're doing as well. And, you know, I think that does shift. I don't know the full details of the um, of the, the dominant coming stories. And they've changed so much throughout the day that you can't pick out what's real or, for want of a better word, fake news. You don't know. I mean, I saw something on the news earlier on and it said that there was a chap with a pair of binoculars who thought that over the Easter weekend he may have seen him in a village up north. Um, you know, you can't. That's ridiculous. That's, you know, there's no evidence there. Um, what's interesting during the, through this, though, is I think the glee of the media who are, you know, putting their personal perspective towards him uh, ahead of a, a lot of the details. You know, also, when we saw Dominic Cummings come out of his house yesterday, where was the social distancing between the photographers and, and the reporters? That didn't seem to be there, um, you know, at all. So common sense, I think, is important. And we've lost a little bit of that. We see this on these daily briefings, don't we, where ministers and, uh, and secretaries of state are being asked very particular individual questions about families whose backgrounds they just don't know they don't know their circumstance and they're trying to be drawn out into into answers um you know because of a a media agenda i do also think it's important to say that you know dominic cummings was, was always going to be a target and there was always going to be a witch hunt for dominic cummings because he produced the largest conservative majority since the thatcher days um you know i think he's a, a threat to, to, to the left and and his strategy is 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 something for i think lots of the left to uh to be fearful of um i don't know the personal circumstances but i do think we need a, a bit of common sense you know there are families in portsmouth who are are saying i have said for for months now or for weeks you know they're they're living in in flats and they just you know they can't get out um you know so i think a, a bit of common sense for your circumstance is important um you know, uh, and if you have to make the choice, you you make that choice based on your personal circumstances. Okay, so is it is it common sense to drive two hundred and fifty miles with um, <laughs> a partner that's got potentially COVID symptoms in a car? Is that what's being said? Is it? Yeah. So it's two hundred miles with. Uh, I thought it was a childcare issue. Is that right? I've sort of seen something about they were. Uh, well, so with, with that, so the, the, so the defence is that it's a child. So she had tested positive for COVID. He feared that he was developing the symptoms. They have a four-year-old son. So the three of them then leapt into the car, drove 250 miles to Durham to stay in a property adjacent to where his elderly parents were living. And the defence was, it was the, it is the, it was the right thing to do to ensure that they had childcare provision should they both be taken incapacitated with COVID. 
So it's his defence that he relocated the... Sorry, mate. He relocated the location of his isolation in the middle of the period of the isolation. Is that is that effectively the, the crux of the defence in order to have nearby um, child... Um, the grandparents to look at, to look after the kids. Uh, sorry, the kids, even though his brother lives in London. That's the... That's the... I think that's the... Are like these, you say... Are these there's allegations? They fact-checked? Well, to, so to, those, to be fair, those, yes, those bits true. have been acknowledged as truth, Terry. So, okay. so you know, it, it is an element. And again, look, don't want to put you on the spot, no, the spot with it. Um, you know, it, it is... Uh, it, 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 I, I'll, I'll be... I've not found it an easy day for me personally, easy couple of days, because I, I, I believe very much in what's in cricket, something called the spirit of the game, which just isn't the letter of the law, but it's the way in which you go about your business. So for me, if you are the person who is telling or is driving the narrative for the country to say, stay home, save lives, protect the NHS, and you are well-connected, well-paid, and living in London, if you then drive to Durham based on, well, we thought we might need some extra childcare, I, 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 for me, that's an indefensible position because there is an element for me of you, you're telling everybody else to stay home. And I think there is a, you know, I, I'm at the point where whether he has broken the law or not is immaterial. And I think Simon quoted this the other day from, I think it was an Alistair Campbell that says, if you're now the story, then you've got to go. And for me, whether he feels morally that he's been, you know, that he's, he, if he doesn't feel he's done anything wrong, then for me, I, I have a, I have a significant problem with his moral compass. Well, look, I think Dominic Cummings was always going to be the story at some point um, yep. but, but because of his successes. Um, look, I've, I've been fortunate enough not to be in a position where, you know, myself or Hayley or, or Olivia have, have contracted any symptoms or anything like that. Um, but I do know, I, listen, there are families out there who have had a real tough time with this and have had to flout, I won't say flout the rules because it's the right way to put it. Um, but I think, you know, with the, we spoke about the mental health issues here, haven't we? Yep. Um, and you know the effect that this is happening on happening on lots of different families, and that's my point. I think where common sense has to come in, and I assume if what you're saying is is, is correct that they made a decision. Um, it's unfortunate that he's um, uh, such a public figure. Let's give yeah. Susie a chance yeah, to. Okay. It's 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 all rather unfortunate. Susie, and, um, <laughs> and to be fair, we need to draw a line under this. Otherwise, I am going to be. I'm going to be forced to bang my own head against my desk in a. Well, turn your camera off when you do it. Let, frustrating and unhelpful way. Let, let's at least let Susie um, respond. Yeah, absolutely. To that. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep it quick, Ian, because you've said most of what I was going to say, which is interesting coming from you. I think he was totally wrong. He, when you do a job, and you, we know this, Terry. If we do something wrong, as pol as even as local politicians, you would expect the repercussions to be much bigger than if you were Mary down the road. Um, well, he knew I would what... argue 
sorry, Susie, I would argue that there are some there's some dreadful behaviour uh, on the council from some fellow politicians. And, I agree. You know, actually, we don't follow a, a code of conduct, do we? Like I agree, but, but you would expect you would expect some kind of um, comeback. I think he was. Um, I don't think he's in a unique situation where he needed to do that. I mean, I have not been into a shop for weeks and weeks and weeks because that is what I am told is the best way to protect my family. Have I wanted to? Yes. Has it really, has it made my life really difficult? In many ways, yes. Is my life as bad as other people know? But I think the rules are really, really clear. If you need to go and get food or medicine or whatever, and you have no option, it will be seen very differently to if you, if you will believe it. And I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He took a risk, he's got found out, and he would have known more than anyone that he was going to um, be hung out to dry more than most people. So I actually think he was wrong and he should go. I, yeah, I don't know what the, the alternatives were for childcare there. Um, I do think it's important, uh, interesting though that you said the rules are very, very clear because the government's been criticised throughout this for the rules not being clear. And I've managed to use that bit of common sense, I think, to, to interpret the rules and, and to not want to kind of go out because I appreciate that if lots of people all make that decision, then you know the perception is that everybody are, are, is out and there's crowds of people and it gets worse and worse. Um, no, so that's interesting. But if you've um, written the rules and you don't know the hmm. rules, then that seems to be. I think well, yeah. you're not keeping to that. But is is so, and, and to be fair, you know, the, the, and, and again, the media has a part to play in this, which is that, you know, for for me, you know, that the 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 stay home word doesn't mean stay home. It's all well, these caveats. And, oh, it's not clear. It's not clear. Nobody knows what they're meant to do. And then when we had the stay. Uh, Oh, why can't they keep it to the stay home? We all understood what that meant. And you think, hang yeah. about. But, that but, the story to but that's the yeah. trouble. So, you, you either have a, so, clear, a clear, short message or you have something that's endlessly prescriptive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess this kind of speaks to Terry's point is that, yes, you, you need at some point, regardless of how prescriptive the, the, the guidelines are, you, you do need to kind of rely on that... Um, on, on that common sense um, and a common sense of what's the, what's the right thing to do, what's the right way to avoid the risk of spreading infection. I just think, um, interesting as it is, yes, you're, you're right that um, the press kind of crowding round outside his front door weren't socially distancing while they were complaining about him not socially distancing. That does seem to be a bit of a, you know, to be honest, that, that seems a bit silly. But in his position, it isn't... It, it, a lot as you probably will both be inexperienced to to, to have observed it isn't necessarily all the time about what you've actually done it's actually about what you perceived to have been done and if you're a bigger part of the story than the person you work for and in this case the prime minister who's just spent 95 percent of his daily coronavirus briefing trying to defend what ian is pretty much describing as the indefensible when i don't, I don't disagree with him if i'm honest um you know he he shouldn't be the story at this point in time but there is a there is a case about and i i do agree with your point a little bit terry about the he was always going to be an easy target for people to say because of how how he is not universally celebrated for what he has achieved Right. And I think that like a um, and that, uh, and that is another unfair. politician, yeah. uh, you know, uh, over the over the pond, hmm. he the media hate him because 
you know, there is an element here that he opens people's eyes to a media agenda. And, you know, regardless of, of personal opinions or any of that sort of stuff, um, it's interesting that they've gone on a personal perspective with him as opposed to, um, you know, one of holding him to account. Hmm. Yeah, well, I guess there's an element of, uh, uh, and again, we are coming up on the hour, uh -huh. and um, is, is there is an element of, had he not have driven to Durham, there would have been no story. And uh, yeah. they'd have to find something else to get him from. We've used a cricket so, reference, uh, so is that an own goal? Is that a foot, Do we squeeze in a football reference? We, we could do. We could do. We said we'd, we'd go football because yeah, I'd had enough of politics today. So Susie, <laughs> Terry, thank you ever so much for coming on board. Been really insightful from both of you to get that, uh, to get that inside story on uh, um, everything that's happening in education in Portsmouth. So you've been listening to the Pompey Politics podcast. Blue and yellow till we die. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our, our guests, guests have been... Susie <laughs> Horton. And, and Terry Norton. And I've been Simon Sansbury. Yeah.